producer's note. This episode contains mention of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. Today's episode borrows heavily from the style and format of Chapel Probation, hosted by Scott Okamoto, our friend and fellow deconstruction-themed podcaster. We mention Chapel Probation here because the subject matter we're covering today is the kind of subject matter Scott covers regularly on his podcast. So if you enjoy this episode, we highly recommend checking out his show. I I went in as such an optimistic story-eyed Christian, and I came out with a broken spirit and a crisis of faith that I have not experienced before or since. Asbury College, I'm, I hate saying it like this because it sounds so harsh, but, but I truly feel like Asbury College killed my faith. Hi, everyone. I'm Gail. I'm Nate. And this is Full Mutuality. On our last few episodes, we talked about cult behavior and went through the bite model. Right at the end of our last episode, going through high control tactics, we quickly brought up the worship services, where people were sleep deprived, and how evangelical culture likes to manipulate emotional responses through this sort of thing. And that takes us right into today's topic. Revival. And if you have any evangelical friends or family on social media, you'll know where this is going. Asbury Revival. A Christian university in rural Kentucky in a town called Wilmore starts a worship service on February 8th. It doesn't come to an end, but continues right through the day. And the next day? And doesn't stop. Pretty soon it's all over the news. Fox News is covering it. Tucker Carlson. Plenty of Christians start sharing about it around the world. People all over the country and even outside the country start driving to Kentucky to get in on the action as they hear of this special work of God all over the place. Something extraordinary is happening. A working of the Holy Spirit, they call it. People start live-streaming the service from their homes. As the lineups around the building continues to grow as the movement starts to shift from students to outsiders coming in, everyone can't stop talking about something beautiful happening there, something organic and of God. And as ex-evangelicals raise their eyebrows in suspicion and influencers take to social media to chide people for being joy stealers who can't just absorb something with an open heart and awe and curiosity for one fucking minute. Apparently, some of us have taken our criticisms too far in being skeptical of this. Right? I mean, can't you just stop imposing your trauma on others? Leave your baggage and don't put your past experience on these happy people just trying to sincerely follow God in their moments of worship. So why are we going to do what we usually do and take a skeptical approach? Are we just acting out of our woundedness? Is this actually about being a hater and just trying to rain on everyone's parade, find problems where none exist just to prove we can't like anything? As Nadia Boltz-Weber, who made the Killjoy comment, said, There are people, both liberals and conservatives, giving their predictable critiques, questioning the righteousness of what is happening in that chapel based on very different criteria, but in a very similar spirit. Wait, 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 wait. Back that up. What did you say? 
Well, Nate, didn't you know that if you are upset Asbury is not complementarian enough or Calvinist enough or any other conservative take, that it's the same spirit of people talking about those who are dealing with oppression and marginalization from the very same school? I don't get it. Neither do I. Some voices do need to be heard, and it's usually the ones that you're not hearing from. The happy students at Asbury, the ones who see hope and change, you'll get that all over the place. People are very invested in their longing to just trust something for once. The longing to see something real. But the real stories from the people harmed? Those won't get platformed in many places. Those people are often scared to tell their stories. They've been kicked out or threatened with silence, or worse. And sometimes those who are kicked out manage to come back and give a warning to the rest of us. Meet Louisa a queer former Asbury student who now helps moderate a social media group for queer former Asbury students and faculty. Their stories are not the ones you're going to hear in the let's be hopeful about this crowd. And their voices that have been pushed down are the ones we need to start listening to. Um, So my name is Luisa Narabeski. I was born and raised in Budapest, Hungary. I moved to the U.S. at age 23 to attend Asbury. Now, I I tried, at the time, I was a very, very starry-eyed, naive, evangelical Christian, and I really wanted to go to a Christian college. And so I tried applying to several different evangelical colleges in the U.S., and um, credit where credit is due, Asbury was one that offered one scholarship to one international student per year. All the others, nothing. You know, they said up front, Um, No matter how high your SATs are, we cannot give you any money. And I mean, I had zero money. (laughs) I loved, uh, (laughs) I know it sounds funny now, but I I was steeped in American evangelical youth culture. At the time, this is, Hungary had just come out of communism in 1989 and everything was just kind of chaos, basically. And evangelicalism gave me kind of um, something to hope for, I guess. I mean, it it might not have been something real, but I have to say that as a teenager, um, I I gained a lot of optimism and hope from it in a a country that was very, very, very short supply of both. So English was something I did on my own and Also, moving abroad was something I did completely by myself. I didn't know anybody in Kentucky. I knew some people in the U.S., but not where I was moving. And none of my family came. So, yeah, I was completely alone. And I, 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 Asbury was like my entire social support system at the time. I came from a, um, I came from kind of a chaotic family background. The evangelical church, you know how, how they say that we are your family now? I ate that up, hook, line, and sinker. It, it, was, it was all I had. I mean, I completely started my life over in a new country, in a new language. Um, it's what I wanted to do, but it was like being beamed out of outer space, beamed into outer space. Um, so I'm from Budapest, which is a city of two million people. It's very, it is post-communist, but it's extremely cosmopolitan. It's um, my parents were, my mom's an artist. My dad was a theater photographer. I did acting like I was a child actor. I grew up around like theater and art people. And, and 
then this happened to me and I ended up in Wilmore, Kentucky in the middle of nowhere. And I honestly, you know, I thought, oh, it's going to be such a wonderful, warm community because that's that's the line they feed you. Um, it's your home away from home. I'm not going to be that homesick because I wanted to do this so bad. Culture shock is not going to be that bad. There's going to be people there who I will make friends immediately. You know, there's professors who will support me and love me. And by the way, there were. But I moved to the U.S. I came to Asbury. Three weeks later, 9-11 happened. And a month after that, my father died. And I never saw him again. Wow. Imagine how hard it must be to leave your country and your culture with all the excitement, but also the vulnerability of being in an entirely different environment with nobody you know. And then try and imagine how much more exposed you would feel with that immense personal loss. What would community mean to you then? What does this community look like? And before we take a look at Revival at Asbury, it's really important to take a look at the culture at Asbury. What were the students like? What was the makeup of her surrounding? And meanwhile, I am steeped in the Asbury culture, which was, it was like, it's like, like, it was like being in outer space. I mean, it was just so isolated from the outside world. And I think, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's intentional. And I came from, you know, a lot of the students came from extremely sheltered backgrounds, homeschooled or Christian school their entire lives. They're pastor's kids, missionary kids. Um, they came from a, a one bubble, uh, their home evangelical bubble, to the Asbury evangelical bubble, without ever seeing the outside world. And for me, who came from a very different <laughs> environment, I, I think that it wasn't so much the culture shock of coming from the U.S. to from Hungary to the U.S. It was the culture shock of coming from a big, busy, vibrant city to this completely isolated environment where, you know, the outside world just is trying to be kept out. This part of Louise's story reminds me so much of my own experience at Bob Jones University. You see, I grew up just outside of New York City, and I experienced all of the diverse culture that that city had to offer. Though at the time I was raised in a fundamentalist, isolationist environment, I still experienced culture shock, moving from an area of the country that's so culturally diverse, and then finding myself in a more controlling isolationist bubble in South Carolina that's afraid of anything from the outside coming in and contaminating the bubble they've created. And I find this part fascinating because this is how fundamentalism and to some extent evangelicalism primes you for their brainwashing. They create an environment that convinces you that the outside world is hostile, and they reinforce it through mandatory Bible classes, chapel five days a week, and mandatory Sunday church services on campus, so you are never exposed to anything but their limited idea of how the world works. I'm sure you've seen people talk about chapel. That chapel, that where, where the revival is going on, that's the Asbury Chapel. It's called Hughes Auditorium. Um, we had chapel three times a week. It's mandatory. Um, students watch other students to make sure they don't sleep or do homework or whatever, and they report on each other. And if you have a certain number of absences, 
um, you get in trouble. And what happened with me was that once the my my next last semester, when I was very emotionally down, I missed. Let me think. I can't remember how much I missed. Like twelve chapels, and I got suspended and sent back to Hungary for six months for for an entire semester for missing chapel. So, you know, like that. That is an example of the history of chapel and why. A lot of former students are very are very hurt by seeing chapel being like exalted as this place of holiness for the world. Imagine having your father die. You are down and you need support. And they use missing chapel not as a reason to come alongside you, but for why they're going to kick you out and punish you. Right. As a former student, when you're watching this going on and you're seeing what's happening there and, and people are talking about how amazing this is and look at this, yes, you know, look at how God is on the move. How, yes. how does that feel for you as you're, you know, past? They don't know anything mm-hmm. about the, they don't know, they don't have any context. They don't know anything about the history of the college. They don't know anything about how this college, um, what it's like to be an actual student, like the everyday life at this place is not what you see on the live stream of the chapel is not a one big happy worldwide family praising God together. Speaking of context, I think this would be a good place to hear from another former student who reached out to us to share her story of what Asbury was like during her time there. I went to college at Asbury and I think something that's important to know is how often revival is pushed. There's constant mention of the one that happened in the 1970s. So as a student, you're desperately like wanting it to happen. You want to be that class generation that brings about this quote revival. That means basically lore on campus. There's even the infrastructure to facilitate such an event because students are required to go to chapel three times a week. You get me, you know, I think it's between seven or eight skips a semester. So returning multiple times per week and to go to chapel is already required. It's already a habit. It's hard to view this as organic or some spiritual miracle when it's literally planned for and hoped for every year. I'd also like to point out that the college posted on their Instagram about the 1970s revival about a week before this one started. And I just use that example because it's a perfect example of how (laughs) revival is, you know, synonymous with Asbury's brand. You know, you say, oh, we're the Eagles. Also, we had revivals. I mean, it's just a part of who they are to the nth degree. As someone who grew up in the Pentecostal church, I'm used to seeing stuff like this, obviously not to this degree, but growing up, there were multiple Sundays where it was like healing Sunday, spirit Sunday, people are speaking in tongues, people are quote being healed, people are falling on the floor, shaking, like running around the uh, sanctuary. So like But the thing is, is like people would talk about this. These are things that you knew were happening in a Pentecostal church and they were expected to happen. And I think expected is a key word with all of this because when something is expected to happen, not necessarily knowing when it will happen, I think it just guarantees that it will, whether it's real or not, which I would say is probably not coming from a psychology perspective. (laughs) It's like the power of suggestion is how I would probably summarize that 
in saying all that, I guess my point is, is like, I don't know that Asbury sat down and said on this Wednesday, we're going to have a revival. And on this Thursday, we're going to wrap it up. Just like the same way in my growing up Pentecostal church. Sure, there were some Sundays, you know, put aside for healing Sundays. But there were also a lot of sermons where all this stuff would happen on their own. Again, I don't think these things are necessarily planned in the way we think of planned. But I think using the word spontaneous on their part is also not very authentic. I don't think that's true. And it can't be spontaneous when you have the infrastructure, when you have the history, when you push that history in every chapel you possibly can, or in small groups, or even in class, some people will, you know, professors will talk about it. So it's not like this came out of nowhere. One of the topics that keep coming up with me and my friends that have been discussing this whole event is exactly what is all this for, meaning the revival. I mean, obviously, everyone who went there feels like they had this life-changing spiritual experience. And even people who tune in from afar, and I'm only saying this because I have family members who are doing this, um, feel like they're being touched spiritually in a meaningful way. And, you know, Asbury, of course, will see such um, meaningfulness in this. But the rest of us are sitting out here in the real world and it's like okay well we still have a lot of awfulness going on especially being perpetuated by the church and asbury itself as an institution is not free of that they do stuff too i really appreciate her point about students being touched in a meaningful way in terms of students being involved in this when people ask if this is for real this revival it's good to understand the broader context These students do believe singing songs and praying to God is meaningful. They believe it draws them closer to God. They're not being insincere, and these services actually do impact students to be more devoted in their relationship to God. But that relationship to God is shaped by the context of which that faith is growing up in. If your chapel services and your school as a whole is teaching you what an authentic faith looks like, and it's telling you the outside world is sinful and has a certain view on sexuality, and this is how they define morality, then drawing closer to God might actually mean doubling down on positions that harm other people. Knowing where the university stands on issues is not entirely separate from the students who choose to attend there and are trying to understand what following God should look like. Let's go back to Louisa's story. You know, I cannot say that it was that it's all bad, but um, depending on where you are, um, there are just just so many issues. Like, there's no diversity, very little diversity in the student body, and I was so disappointed because um, <laughs> I one of the reasons why I wanted to come to college in the U.S. is because I wanted to uh, be in a, a diverse community. Hungary is it's very is, is like overwhelmingly white. Um, now, I had the privilege of going to an international school, which is actually majority Asian. So I was very comfortable with, um, and I was looking forward to um, being in a, a country that is a lot more racially and culturally diverse than my own. And, well, Asbury was not. I mean, it was very white, and it was um, one little thing that was so almost comical to me was that I remember that. Uh, 
missionary kids who had grown up in certain countries would be counted as students from that country. White missionary kids who had grown up in Kenya, for example, were counted as being from Kenya. It was, it was big yikes. Um, faculty had no diversity, almost, almost none at all. I mean, students, there was some, a little bit. There were a few of us international students. Faculty had none. Maybe some things have changed a little bit, but um, I mean, I'm sure some things have, have very, very slowly changed since 2001, but I would not hold my breath for, for, for any, any true change. I mean, I'm glad that there are queer students there now who feel safer than I did, but I also know queer students who have just graduated um, because who, who have just graduated or graduated maybe a couple years ago, who, who are, are utterly traumatized by, well, one, how, that, what they experienced at Asbury, and two, what they're seeing now, um, Asbury being exalted as this, as this wonderful place. Diversity at Asbury. Yikes, indeed. There are a few tweets I want to interject with in here because others have made the points on what white revival looks like and feels like better than I can. This one is from Kyle J. Howard. Any revival among white people that doesn't bring with it a deep love for black people, zeal to divest from white power, and a passion for social justice is not a revival. It's merely a faith-based euphoric experience. Spoiler, the Great Awakening wasn't great or an awakening. Black people still had chains. When I think of the very well-known white revivals, I can't help but think of The Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards as one of its biggest name leaders. The fact that owning humans and loving your neighbor was not seen as any sort of a contradiction says a lot about the dangers of having a group of mostly white people unwilling to divest themselves of power. As our friend Janice Legata stated, what are we trying to revive? Cognitive dissonance? Or as Brian Laurie said, it's bewildering that slavery survived during times of revival in our nation. This fact alone says a lot about the historic legacy of evangelicals and their understanding of the gospel. The fact that Asbury has had so many revivals in a school that currently has a faculty that's 98% white, and that throughout the years, not much has changed with regards to white people being so oversaturated in these spaces. That says a lot. It's worth noting that Asbury as a school was one of the last Bible colleges in the States to desegregate over 10 years after those laws were passed. And this was even though the school at that point had hosted many revivals. The utter disconnect in white evangelicalism in loving others and holding revivals leaves a lot of people with many relevant questions. Holding the school on a pedestal doesn't just harm communities of color who've been very underrepresented, even if there was a black gospel band kicking this off. It doesn't change the way Asbury has systemically handled themselves with regards to divesting of whiteness. And they're not the only community feeling the sting and harm of holding this place on a pedestal. We've had it for quite a while now. I mean, for about 10 years or more. It's a, it's a group for LGBTQ alumni, former students and allies. I'm um, differentiating between alumni and former students because like I didn't I, I and a, a lot of us or, or some of some others of us that did not could not graduate because we just couldn't deal with it so um but yeah it's not it was actually uh it's not not always a very active group but when things like this happen like the the revival people people start talking and this is why this is partly why I am saying that the 
the uncritical and gushing coverage, media coverage of the revival is really seriously hurting people. It's hurting former students. It's even hurting some former faculty. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in 2020, um, two long-term beloved professors were fired for nothing other than being supportive of LGBTQ students. Neither one of them are gay. Neither one of them did anything else than supporting queer students. It is, um, it was such an ugly and such a humiliating ordeal for them. And it caused a lot of pain for then current students at Asbury. There was a, um, there was a big uproar in the student body because, you know, because a lot of the students there knew that this was wrong. I think when people want to portray this university as having supportive staff towards queer students, they probably need to be aware of this detail, including what the university has done to affirming teachers recently, even after so many revivals have taken place there. One teacher named Jill Toller Campbell, who was let go, although not the only one to be let go, wrote this publicly on her Facebook post on February 13th. Trigger warning, religious trauma and current events. Please understand that I have received numerous messages about a place that I do not work at anymore, for my own necessary boundaries will not speak directly or specifically about any current campus event or activities at that place. I will, however, say this. The place so many are referencing and inviting me to this week is impossible for me to go back to. God has helped me through the enormous pain, grief, and trauma of what I experienced there, and I do not have to ever step foot back in a place that literally broke my heart, a place that rejected many humans, and a place that has never reached out to me to apologize. If ever such a dialogue would come, you would think it would be during this time, but it has not, and I assume it will never come. I do not owe that place anything. I do not have any responsibility to correct their missteps. I have always been completely honest and transparent about my experience there, and I stand by my choices and my faith journey. I am uninterested in division, bigotry, or exclusion. You don't have to feel warm and fuzzy about something or some events that folks are so happy about because you're allowed to see things differently than others. It's okay for your heart to hurt or even be triggered by a place that rejected you being in the news. True connection to God produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's use that guide to see if folks have been revived. I pray that you'll all understand my heart broke into so many pieces as I left that place, and I wasn't sure I could go on. But I can, and I did, and I'll continue to walk and shout out into the abyss for all to be welcomed and told of their infinite worth in the world. Amen. Peace to my own heart, and absolutely to all. Good night, friends. God is love no matter what. And she ended with an image that said, It's hard to convince people that a God they can't see loves them when a church they can see doesn't seem to like them. That last point is just so powerful. Revivals that come with no real fruit are empty at best and manipulative and dangerous at worst. Speaking of the many revivals in the past, here's Louisa again. There was a famous revival at Esbury College in 1970. There were always also two minor ones uh, earlier in the 20th century. I don't know anything about those. Um, the one in 1970 is the most famous one. Um, I cannot speak to its genuineness. Um, I just know that it was like a major historical event in the life of the college. 
And uh, my sense was because it was constantly brought up, constantly celebrated, constantly, you know, um, you were not allowed to forget about it. My sense always was, and this was, this was affirmed by some other students. In fact, one of the people posting on the same thread that I was, that you, where you saw my comment was saying the same thing. This is one of my classmates, was actually my room for a while, saying that the college was is always subtly pushing for this. I felt that it was very kind of subtly socially engineering, you know, encouraging people, encouraging students to, um, to repeat the revival um, so that Asbury could, you know, so that this would happen, that Asbury would be, would be, you know, affirmed in its identity as this, as this, uh, as this place of revival, the place where the spirit moves. And so that uh, we were not allowed to forget about it. And in fact, sometimes they would bring in chapel speakers. I remember this very, very vividly. Um, they brought in this guy by the name of Buddy Berry for one chapel. And he was, most chapels were pretty, very low key. Um, this guy was kind of charismatic ish. Um, and he, after he was done preaching, um, he started, he, he, he started doing an sort of an altar call, which is not normal, not really for regular chapel. And, um, students started like running down to the altar to pray and like, it was so much pressure. Like it was such an emotionally pressuring thing. It didn't turn out to be anything, but it made me super uncomfortable because it was so, it felt so manipulative. And I just had to leave because I was, I was kind of disgusted by the transparent manipulation of the student of very young students. It, it felt very, very manufactured. And now I, I wonder if they periodically brought in, um, speakers like that to to um to get something stirred up 50 years ago something extraordinary happened on one college campus i thought i had seen everything but today i saw something that i have never seen before it started at 10 o'clock yesterday morning it didn't end at 11 o'clock yesterday morning it didn't end at 11 o'clock last night in fact as jim and i took the air it was still going on it all started when one student gave his testimony. That was followed by another, and the testimonies have been going ever since. And as it spread, people began coming in from all around. Something happened to me as a teenager where God moved in the inside of me and, and set me on this trajectory of following him. This is what has happened to so many of us, and this is what we need to see happen in this generation of college students. Someone got on their face. I believe with all my heart that people prayed for me, and now I love him at my age. It's the church's responsibility. God, would you show your mercy on him, on her, just the way you did with me, because this is their only hope. We need him to change their hearts so that they can change the direction of our nation. We're asking you, please join us. Join us for this day of prayer. 
Join us in praying for these young people. Believe that God can usher in something new through the power of our prayers. Join us on February 23rd, live from Asbury University. Lord, do it again. That video you just heard? That was posted to social media as a promo for the upcoming day of prayer, a week before the revival started. And those clips that were in that video referencing that 1970s revival, they even stated at the end of the video as bluntly as they can say it, Lord, do it again. I'd like to play for you a recording from our friend Rick, a writer for Baptist News Global, who recently published an article about this very revival, which we will link in the show notes. But here's a voice note that he sent us. Hey guys, love the show, and just wanted to share some information that I've uh, found while working on an article about the Asbury quote-unquote revival events. Um, I'm not really sure quite what to call them, but basically a lot of people are saying that it started unexpectedly as a surprise on February 8th, but a week before that, on February 1st, there was a promotional video that was released uh, by um, and it's on YouTube. You can see it. It's called Collegiate Day of Prayer 2023, live from Asbury University. And anybody can look it up. It was posted a week before, and they basically describe exactly what happened, the full revival. You know, um, it sounds exactly like what's going on right now, and it's a promotional video the week before all of this started. And they've got Francis Chan coming in on the 23rd of February, and uh, in the description it says that Rick Warren is coming, members of the International House of Prayer are coming to lead worship, and when I looked into that Collegiate Day of Prayer, they have, they are supported by uh, the Luke 18 Project, Awaken the Dawn, Passion Conferences, Campus Crusade for Christ, InterVarsity, America Praise, and many others. They have uh, promotional videos that they've done with members of the New Apostolic Reformation, which I've written about, uh, that uh, helped to fuel the January 6th insurrection attempt. And so, basically, I think that like a lot of the what people are seeing is what on is what's on stage with these you know 20 year old worship leaders and their acoustic guitars and they're seeing the the innocence that you know we all felt in evangelicalism at the time of you know con- coming together with your friends and singing songs but what people aren't recognizing is that behind the scenes there the the university has partnered with these people that are very power driven in their boardrooms so we need to not get so distracted by what seems innocent on a stage and start realizing that what's going on behind the boardroom and what the what the plans are for taking this beyond their campus to other campuses could uh, raise some questions, to say the least. Talk about having questions. Doesn't anyone else find it fishy that a student-led, unorganized, organic, unplanned revival that is supposed to be a working of the Spirit has an end date that the school is already set to correspond with this event on the 23rd? Do unplanned revivals typically have schools set an end date to them when they're uncontrolled outpourings of God that are unplanned? <laughs> the students were not only primed for revival, but teachers are being told to be lenient about students not showing for class to participate or if they can't complete projects because of it. Faculty was told it's important that students are free to attend the multi-day services. Even though classes weren't being canceled, 
and staff should, quote unquote, allow grace and work with your students who missed class for this campus movement of the Holy Spirit. Help your students to find ways and options to make up work missed due to this blessing from God. So we have this note to faculty, constant chapel messages about revival, and this video saying, let's do it again. And then there are other concerns. So Rick mentioned the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. Um, And we'll link to it in the show notes, but our friend Brad Onishi at the Straight White American Jesus podcast put together a whole podcast miniseries discussing the NAR and the role that they played in the attempted insurrection and attack on the U.S. Capitol. That series is worth a listen. It's called Charismatic Revival Fury, and you can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Straight White American Jesus. It's really fascinating that some of the guys coming in are from NAR, including the International House of Prayer, and people have commented about how the school, it's not about a Christian nationalist movement, but it doesn't take much digging into this university to come across their newspaper, the Asbury Collegian, and see them promoting Donald Trump in the past and even giving his talking points. In fact, I saw one article from two years ago titled, President Trump Acquitted. So for anyone assuming the school is from all sides of the spectrum and that the university itself doesn't have any sort of political allegiance, you really need to go check out their stuff. Okay, can we talk about Francis Chan for a moment? Go, Nate. (laughs) He's the guy that Rick mentioned will be preaching at the finale of this revival and whose voice is the one you heard primarily in that video clip calling for revival. Francis Chan is the former pastor of a California megachurch called Cornerstone Church, which he suddenly abandoned just 15 years after he started it with 30 people, and at a time that the church had reached 6,000 attendees. His first book, Crazy Love, which he published in 2008, and which inspired small group studies in churches across the world, sold over 2 million copies in its first four years on store shelves. I did that book with my youth group. Everyone was doing it. I have so many regrets. We all do. Francis Chan is definitely homophobic and patriarchal. I mean, he's basically all of the terrible things about evangelicalism wrapped up in one person. There's a whole piece on Quora about him and the shady ways he handles money donated to his so-called ministries. But I want to leave it at something our friend Scott recalls Chan saying during a sermon he preached during a chapel service at Azusa Pacific University, a school that invites him to preach very often, around 12 or 13 years ago. He said, I never really liked Asian girls. They remind me of my sister. Why do Asian girls remind you of your sister, Francis? Is it because all Asians look the same to you? I never hear a white guy saying any of this stuff about not liking white girls. It's so ridiculous and awful, and yet these are the guys invited to IVCF events that I've been to. I've heard him preach live at Urbana. These are the guys influencing evangelical culture. And this is who Asbury has promoted before the revival and will end off with. But enough about Francis, though. Let's go back to the Asbury students' take. And so, you know, for people who aren't involved with it or people who are ex-evangelical, it's hard to see these events happening because, you know, there's all these people who feel so good about themselves and this institution's getting put on a pedestal. But some of us know what happens behind closed doors. We know how LGBTQ plus people are treated. We know how people of color are treated at that college. Like, it's hard to see them put on the spiritual pedestal when you know they are actively trying to be exempt from Title IX 
and they fired a long-standing professor only because he provided a safe space for LGBTQ plus students to be able to just digest how they felt about their sexuality while being in an environment that was absolutely exclusive to that identity. And even if something comes from this, I think, again, it's just the question of to what extent, for what. And I think the last, the 1970s revival, there's been other revivals, but the 1971 is the most popular. And after that one, there was like 3,000 students, I think, that went out and started witnessing to colleges in the general area. And just historically, if we look at what has befallen since the 70s, I don't think it made a difference. <laughs> like, and I guess that's kind of what all this is about is like, okay, you're hyping up the 1970s example of a revival, but like nothing came from that. So what's going to come from this? Probably nothing in the long term because it's not addressing any actual needs that the world has. Yes, thank you for that. Going back to the fruit of revival, repentance should absolutely be one of the fruit of a movement of revival, but often it's something totally missing or overlooked when people zoom in onto white environments where students are singing for an entire week and huddle up in just one place. I saw an interesting tweet via Melody Winderweedle that said this, What's interesting about the Asbury revival is the amount of attention it's getting, because there's been a revival happening for years. It's happening in the people who've left evangelicalism because of the toxicity and the marriage to Christian nationalism. It's been happening as prophetic voices of black and brown people speak out against the church's marriage to white supremacy and racism. It has been happening as victims of sexual abuse find the courage to speak up against the church's marriage to patriarchy and misogyny. It has been happening as the stories of the LGBTQ community speak against the church's marriage to homophobia and transphobia. This is where the revival has been happening, in folks having the courage to say to the church, repent. What a fantastic point. Another guy named Shane Pruitt, apparently his meme goes like this, us, Lord, send us revival. God, here you go. Us, here's my list of concerns, critiques, and cautions about it. You hear what that white guy is saying? (laughs) I think he's telling us to be quiet. God can work however he wants. And I've heard that from many people as a response to the problematic nature of some of this. Here's a meme I made a while back that's a little different than Shane's. Christians. Lord, bring us revival. God exposes how deep the corruption and abuse is going on in churches. Christian. The enemy is just trying to attack us by exposing all this. And that's the response I see to people like us who are scrutinizing this revival. Lots of people preface their gushing over this revival with how they're they're skeptical but then go on to call this whole thing beautiful and healthy. They keep repeating that they're so skeptical that, you know, they have so many concerns too, but then go on to take issue with those of us that see many problems with this and question the genuineness. There are plenty of people out there who are going to tell you how God is up to something, and if that's not sitting right with you, I'm going to tell you that you can trust your gut. I'm going to say that you likely have some very relevant experiences of your own that are informing you of stuff. And those stories are what we wanted to highlight on this episode. Don't let anyone tell you it's just you imposing your trauma on others. I think if there's one thing I really think is deeply harmful, it's being gaslit by the most privileged people trying to let you know that this is just your baggage when you start to question if what's going on makes sense. 
Using your past experience shouldn't be gaslit as if you're acting out of some trauma now for not having a positive take on this whole thing. Maybe it's just you've seen it all before and you're tired of seeing people get hurt over and over again. Um, I cannot, again, I cannot say that that was the case, but there was always pressure. I always felt like they are trying to, to, they're trying to pressure students to have this response. It was almost as if they sometimes brought in, brought in chapel speakers to, to induce that kind of response. And which, because of my old church, to me felt very creepy and manipulative. Some of us have to have those experiences that give us those red flags that pop up. And a lot of people like to go, oh, that's just your trauma speaking. And I like to say, actually, it's your experience no, speaking. No, it, it was, is your it lived. Was a, it was not a, an emotional response in me so much as a, I've seen this before response. And I was, dis- I was disappointed because I started to really like Asbury at the time. I was, it was my first semester as a freshman and um and again I was still very optimistic and starry-eyed and and that just that was one of the first sort of signs that that sometimes things got icky there as far as far as students being manipulated. Were you aware at the time that you were a queer student when you entered into the space of Asbury or did that is that something you figured <laughs> out as very, you attended? No, I was a very self-loathing queer student. Um I think that I've I had always been attracted pretty much exclusively to, to women and girls. But when I started going to my old church, um, that was so, that church was so virulently homophobic, even more so than Asbury. I mean, I remember, and I'm, I'm sure this will be familiar to you. It, um, and I'm sure you've heard this before that I would, I would just pray and pray for God to take these feelings away and to cleanse me. And, uh, you know, thinking about it, was a, it was a huge, like, like spiritual, like I, I thought <laughs> I was conditioned to think of it as a spiritual battle. And I was, I was certain that I would, I would, I would have to be single my entire life if I wanted to please God. And look at you now. <laughs> look at me now. <laughs> Louisa goes on to share the story of how she met her wife. And it's a beautiful story, but Unfortunately, we had to cut it out as there is a lot more relevant info that we need to cover. However, there are two ways that you can hear the rest of Louise's story. First, you can support us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash fullmutuality and signing up to become a partner. You'll get a special podcast feed that will give you access to both Louise's story and other bonus episodes as they come out. The other way is actually totally free. You can join us over in the Dauntless Media Discord server, where we'll provide access to the audio file of the entire conversation between Gail and Louisa. Hey everyone, I'm Jessica from the Leaving the Village podcast. I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into this show. We're so grateful that you've decided to spend your time with us. Seriously, Dan, Gail, Kathleen, Nate, Scott, and the rest of us here at the Dauntless Media Collective couldn't produce content like the show you're listening to without your support. I'd also like to invite you even further into the conversation. Right now, there are some great discussions happening over in the Dauntless Media Collective Discord server. If you're interested in chatting with other folks who are deconstructing and decolonizing the oppressive traditions they came from, please feel free to hop onto the server. If you don't know what Discord is, it's a place where communities can gather online for chatting on a wide variety of topics. 
in our Discord server. We have channels devoted to general deconstruction conversations, some meme sharing, therapeutic venting about whatever religious bullshit you're currently dealing with, and even a channel specifically devoted to talking about the latest episode of the podcast you're listening to right now. I hope you'll join us. You can log in directly to the Dauntless server by clicking on the link in the show notes or heading to dauntless.fm and clicking on the link in the top banner. See you there. What is it you want me to reconcile myself to? I was born here almost 60 years ago. I'm not going to live another 60 years. You've always told me it takes time. It's taken my father's time, my mother's time, my uncle's time, my brother's and my sister's time. My nieces and my nephews time. How much time do you want for your progress? I hate you, naturally. And I hate black people. Things are going to get worse before they get better. What is presented to me as an American does not look like me. Because you're not allowed to be a black man in corporate America. You give us a hard time for being white, being American, and being in control. And when you live under a situation like that constantly, uh... And then you ask me, you know, whether I approve of violence. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff happening right now. And you know what? We need a space where we can debrief some of it and deconstruct. If you've been looking for a POC-centered podcast that engages with intersectionality, religion, critical race theory, and some hip-hop culture, then you need to check out Profane Faith. I'll be your host, Daniel Whitehodge, and we go in every other week. So check us out wherever you find your podcasts or check us out at whitehodgepodcasts.com to see what other platforms we're on. Cool? All right. Peace. I, I did know that it was against the rules for me to date a woman, but, uh, but well, I did anyway. Um, to be absolutely fair, you know, everybody did things against the rules and that, um, you know, like, for example, of course, of course, Asbury was a strictly, strictly dry campus. Do you think that, do you think there were students there, including pastor's kids, including, you know, administrator kids who, who drank? Of course there were. Who, who went to Lexington for parties? Of course there were. Like... <laughs> I, I'm I'm no better than anybody else, but um, um but some rules but yeah. they take they really do crack down on harder than other things. I'm sure, depending uh, on who you are saying. and who you relate. Really, yeah. Thank you, exactly. Depending on who your dad is, um, things get things got overlooked a lot, a lot. And did uh, Asbury ever end up finding out in your scenario? Or not officially. Not officially, no. but things really came to a boiling point that semester, and not just because I was I was I was dating um, my then girlfriend, my wife, but also because um, uh, that year um, I think that things got really bad because that year um, the first U.S. state, Massachusetts, legalized same-sex marriage, and that got a lot of it was huge and what I'm saying and, and it got a lot of and also the year the previous year was the Supreme Court court decision Lawrence versus Texas do you know what that was no okay that was that was the Supreme Court decision that officially decriminalized sodomy in the United States 
Wow. So because of these two big current events, um, the evangelical homophobia got really ratcheted up because um, these were two big wins for us and two big losses for them. And that, of course, filtered through to Asbury because Asbury is part of the conservative evangelical establishment. Asbury has always had people there that were safe, that you could trust. But as I've illustrated before, their careers were at risk for that reason. Like, they were legitimately terrified of losing their jobs for supporting queer students then and apparently also now. Asbury has, at the time, and I'm I'm not sure, I have not looked into this, what it was, but... um, Asbury has several prominent older alumni and also at the time, this I'm talking 2001 to 2004, um, its board of trustees were packed with American conservative evangelical, like powerful conservative evangelical, I, um, I, would, I, would, I would put it this way, lobbyists, like people who were, who had power in the, U.S. conservative means like the U.S. conservative establishment. Um, they get a lot of money from from powerful conservatives, and they, they you know they have prominent alumni who are famous who are part of that establishment. Um, it's it's Asbury cannot afford to change because it would lose so much money and so much clout. It would lose the respect. I mean, it would it would would just be, um, it would be ostracized. It, it, it's not going to do that. It's not going to start becoming affirming, even if individuals at Asbury um, would like that to happen. As an institution, it has so much to lose. I think you're bringing up such an important point because I think there are a lot of hopeful people pushing for change, and they they yes, don't they recognize are. that of they how structural are. the whole thing is, um, right? I think and that, well. I don't know. I mean, we talk about this in our group, in our alumni group, and I think that a lot of us are, we are aware of this. And this is why we are not, we're not going to say, oh, it's going to change. Change is going to come to Asbury College, Asbury University. Sorry, it used to be called Asbury College. Unless there's, you know, one day there's a president who is extraordinarily courageous and who is willing to risk, to, to, to take all these risks. But I don't even, even then, I don't know that, that, that the president could unilaterally make these decisions. I don't think he could. The board like, could overthrow him, I guess, the if board they didn't like his direction. And the administration could over, overthrow him. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so so a lot of the, the students, the alumni, those who are queer are aware of the structural yes, issues and are not so. fooled by this idea that change is coming around the corner. They're aware of the reality of the situation. Yeah, um, I mean, it's not it's not a happy feeling, but it's it just... It, it's helpful to have clarity about this and to not um, to not long for something that that we know is extremely unlikely just because of of Asbury's position as an institution. I mean, um, I don't know if you've you've heard of this, but um, Asbury got a Title IX ex- exemption um, from having to to uh, so t- Title IX in the U.S. Um, requires uh, higher higher education institutions to not discriminate based on sexual orientation 
or gender identity, but you can get a religious exemption. And as Ray got a religious exemption, it was celebrated like, oh, God has, you know, God has saved Asbury, you know, from some, some sort of government persecution. This was, this happened, and I was just like, it, it tracks. It, I mean, it's, unfortunately, it wasn't a surprise. There were so many, and I cannot, I cannot uh, overemphasize this. There are so many good people at Asbury, especially in my experience, faculty members. So many good people who, um, who risk their careers, risk their jobs, risk their social standing by um, by being able to to quietly support us. And some of them, some of them lost lost these things, lost their jobs. Um, some of them were able to just you know just retire and not not have anybody make, make a fuss about it. But, but I will never stop thinking of those professors with gratitude and with love, and I'm still in touch with them. Um, and I will never lose sight of, of how meaningful and how, you know, it was one thing to, to be a lifeline for me, but for, I did not, you know, I, in a lot of ways, my position wasn't as bad because I did not have religious parents. I did not, I was not a pastor's kid, a missionary kid. I did not have um, as much tied up in this world as, as a lot, a lot of those kids who came from these very intensely religious backgrounds. And, um, but a lot, a lot of, of Asbury students did not choose this life and did not choose these families. And so for them, it's a lot more difficult to it's a lot more difficult to grapple with this. For some students, it's very harmful. I, I've been I've been sort of watching how this event is being covered in the Christian media and the secular media, in the local media and the nationwide media, and even international media. And what strikes me is that the coverage has been so completely uncritical. Or well, not maybe not. Compl- I'm sorry, I shouldn't say this. Not completely uncritical, but but mostly critical, very credulous, um, not really digging into, into the background of the institution. I have not seen a lot of, a lot of us dissenters being heard. What I have observed in our, in our alumni group for the past two weeks has been a lot, a lot of pain. It's, it's been very painful for these students, for these, I mean, these former students, um, and also some of the former faculty to see an institution that has um, that has that has hurt and traumatized them um, be uncritically celebrated by people who don't really know very much about it, based on this one event. And I would like to also add, because I haven't really gone into this, that beyond just the the, the policies of you know you're not allowed to de- to date people of your same of the same sex or you're not allowed to you're not allowed to to publicly support <laughs> publicly support students. I'm not ex-evangelical TMZ running off to be on the ground and make this event more of a spectacle because I hear that's what it's turned into with the town and school itself being overwhelmed by all these out-of-towners flocking there to try and get a piece of this, whether to critique it or to participate in it. But I'm so thankful for people willing to tell their stories to us. One former faculty member who asked to remain anonymous sent me this message. I worked at Asbury in February 2020 when two beloved professors were fired for being affirming. Of course, that's not what the official word was, but everyone knew it. 
I had students who those were their advisors. And I remember one came to class visibly upset about all of it. And I told her if she needed anything, I'd be there. I've since heard from many LGBTQ alum of how terrible their time was at Asbury. So much pray the gay away and denying who they really were because they were told who they were in and of itself was sinful. This whole revival, and I use quotes intentionally, gives me the ick. I truly believe nothing is changing. No greater good is coming of this. Asbury alum talk about the revivals in the past being mentioned so often, almost coercing students to manifest another one. I know on February 8th, this quote-unquote revival that was started quote-unquote spontaneously, a campus-wide email was sent from the president of the university inviting everyone to come back for worship. Maybe I'm cynical, but if the president is asking you to worship and let your students skip class to also be there, of course the auditorium will be full. I just don't think it's genuine. When the leaders of the university repent for their own bigotry against the LGBTQ community, then I'll believe this is revival is real. And we're thankful for people like Louisa, who are also willing to speak out so publicly. Beyond the policies, there was just a lot of every just everyday stuff. Like, for example, the reason why that year was a breaking point for me, the year when I said, you know, there were these important decisions in U.S. public life, is there was a lot of backlash at the school. There was one professor who regularly posted articles on his office door about um, the relationship, the well, the, the manufactured relationship between homosexuality and pedophilia, about how um, you know gay people are a lot more likely to molest children than straight people. He would, this is a, he's a history professor, and he would post this crap on his office door for everybody to read. Um, Another professor, my own psychology professor, this was one of my many breaking points. Um, he, when this, when the, the Massachusetts decision came down, he, in class, he played us a video of a protest at this megachurch near Asbury called Southland Christian Church. And he gave us these handouts from the American Family Association, which is one of the most virulently homophobic, horrible hate groups in the U.S., that said that the average lifespan of a homosexual is 35 years and that the average number of sex partners that a gay person has is 500 in their lifetime or maybe even in a year. And I just, I got up and left because I could not, this is the kind of thing that was like constantly happening. There were chapel speakers that, that told, that, you know, in my post I said that that, that there were chapel speakers saying that we're an abomination to God. This is, this is literal, like they would literally say, talk about um, LGBTQ issues as being, you know, Satan's attack on the church, as being, um, and if you, it was a very memorable quote that they said, you're, if, you, if you don't vote in the correct manner, you are sold out to the liberal agenda that feminism and homosexuality and, um, and, you know, things like abortion rights were ways that Satan, you know, um, seduced young people into his fold. And I mean, it was, see, it was, wasn't just the policies in the background. It was constant, like, you heard this in, you heard this in chapel, you heard this in academic classes, you heard this, um, you would have these little prayer meetings, people would talk about it. Um, people would call each other faggots as a joke. Um, people would, you know, be constantly afraid of being outed and expelled. I was not expelled because I left. But had I been outed, I would have been expelled. It wasn't just, just the policies. It was the everyday 
sort of constant drumbeat of of um, of hatred, not just against LGBTQ people, but against feminists, against um, but against any kind of liberals, you know, progressives. Um, but the, these were like the two major ones: is was the, the queers and the feminists were, were the easiest targets, I think. Yeah. So yeah, it was this. It was part of everyday life, and this is why being a queer student at Asbury was very bad for your mental health. It was, I have a friend, a friend yeah. who um, was te- was telling me that she has a student whose sibling unalived themselves at, at after com- being at Asbury because they were queer. Oh my um, god! And I'm so sorry. And, and that's. That is the reason why, for me, your stories that you're telling today, even if the school has come a long way from maybe where, where you know, the stuff professors were saying and doing in chapel, maybe it's not as overt. Um, currently, there are still students whose mental health are suffering so badly that's being exactly in that right. environment that that's exactly right that they would yeah. rather that they would rather not be be alive anymore because of the influence of that school. And I feel like for every student that might have something positive to say or hopeful to say who might be queer i think i wouldn't want those students to be weaponized against the queer community for the many students who have suffered at asbury like you said i don't want your voices to be silenced i don't want it to be to uh, a balanced view would would allow for those who have had bad experiences at asbury to be heard as well here's the thing people who are excited about the revival who might have come to the revival there will be hordes of people sending their children to asbury based on this or hordes of very much like me, excited, starry-eyed young Christians thinking, what a wonderful place to go to college. And a lot of kids will be heard. I really appreciated her thoughts about starry-eyed students, because plenty of us existed at one time within evangelical organizations, and we're happy there. We started to see problems, and we wanted to make a change. And of course, while we were busy trying to help with that change, of course, we believed it could accomplish something. I'm going to give another plug for Scott Okamoto's podcast, where he covers the stories of evangelical universities all over the place, from the perspectives of the students. And one of the things I find so fascinating is the number of students who said they came in starry-eyed and hopeful. They may even have seen problems and wanted to make a difference. Many of them didn't process their trauma that the place caused them while they were there. But it took many years after leaving to begin to see the harm. Even though students often make a difference to other individuals in those environments, it's sad to see that with all the energy poured out into those spaces, most of those institutions did nothing based on all the movements to change their policies that harm queer people or people of color or women. I appreciate the points about people sending their kids to Asbury University because of how heavily promoted this revival is. I'm also really worried about people trying to highlight queer kids who feel safe and hopeful at Asbury. I'm not saying these stories are made up, but the opposite stories where it doesn't work out are super important and should not go untold. I feel like I've been repeating myself a little, but safety of queer students, that really matters. I think it's important to be aware of the official stance that the school holds on the LGBTQI question. So I'm just going to read this directly from their website. They have a lot of other harmful perspectives, but I'm just going to stick to the part they have on human sexuality. This is from their site, Human Sexuality. The university affirms the biblical view of human sexuality as being expressed fully in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Sexual immorality, including adultery, same-sex behavior, and premarital sexual intimacy. These behaviors are expressively prohibited in scripture. Offenses in this area are almost certain to result in separation from the university for a period of time. 
separation from the university for a period of time. Here we need to recognize just how much power an institution holds over the careers and even the lives of students when they wield that power as a weapon through an act like expulsion. For those of you listening who attended a public university or even a secularized private university, the thought of getting kicked out of your school is unheard of. However, for those of us who attended evangelical universities and colleges, it's a fear we lived under daily. Knowing that no registrar in their right mind would readily welcome a transfer student who had been kicked out of another university, because a normal university reserves expulsion for only the worst possible offenses. To put that on a student's record, whose crimes were things like missing chapel too many times, simply existing as an LGBTQ person, or even exploring who they are as a sexual human being at a time in your life where it's completely normal to discover these things about yourself, is a form of abuse that has untold repercussions in students' lives. This is the harm. This is the, this is the harm. That, what, you know, what is the harm of being positive about the revival? This is the harm. Is that, is that you have to be aware of... of it's, it's like this massive PR campaign for the college. A free PR campaign. And um, I wish that people would be aware of of what this play, what this college represents. That you know, it's it's one thing to go to the revival, and God bless you if you find meaning in it. But it's another thing to be aware of of what it's like to be an actual student there. I mean, that's the main purpose of the school. It's not a church. It's a it's a, an educational institution, and people need to know what it's like. I want to jump on this this quick train before we go, but I'm thinking, if this was a sincere move of God, what would you expect to be at the forefront towards all the queer students who've gone through hell, literal hell on earth, at at the hands of that school? What would you expect from the university if this was a true God changing hearts and making a difference? Oh gosh, an apology. I mean, a huge apology, a a recognition of of harm, a recognition of, um, of, of the college having hurt people. Um, a recognition that they have used the Bible and um, and the idea uh, uh, and the idea of purity, you know, like purity culture, as a, as a clobber to make us to to make us um, to make us try to erase that part of ourselves. Um, a recognition of harm and a, and a, I would I would so love it if the college. Uh, one day apologize to us. But I, I mean, I, I know it's, it's very naive. I'm not holding my breath. And, you know, here's the thing, and this is, this is, again, something that I just, I was thinking of, that I went in, I, I went in as such an optimistic, starry-eyed Christian, and I came out with a broken spirit and a crisis of faith that I have not experienced before or since. Asbury College, I'm, I hate saying it like this because it sounds so harsh, but, but I truly feel like Asbury College killed my faith. And, and I appreciate your story because you, you're balanced. You, in, your, in the middle of talking about how it's killed your faith, you have acknowledged the teachers who've been a, an amazing I cannot support. Not acknowledge You've acknowledged them. the people cannot, you loved oh and gosh, cared. No, I cannot not acknowledge But that's them. what I mean. You, it's, it's not, I think people need to understand it's not about hating on Asbury no. at all. That's not, when people are, are trying to explain the harm of what 
what it's like to be queer in that environment or the danger of sending your kid to that school. Mm-hmm. What could happen? We are not saying every staff or every person at Asbury is bad at all. That's not the message. No, absolutely the message not. is fact, to be I found, aware. I found a lot of support and the individual, the Asbury individuals, many of them are, are wonderful people that I still to this day think of as, as part of my extended family. Asbury as an institution, I think it's similar to a church. Like that a congregation can be wonderful, the pastor can be wonderful, but but yet the institution can still be monstrous. The teachings, the, the teachings, leadership. Yes. Yeah, there could be a the, lot of stuff that's also working the, against the, the Unfortunately, the 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 considerations of power, of money, of political influence, I wish that wasn't present, but it unfortunately is. It's very much present. This is an important piece of their current policy that's worth noting before promoting Asbury University as a safe place for queer kids. When people hold up side B queer Christians who may actually have takes that end up causing harm to other queer students, we're weaponizing the community to silence those who have been deeply harmed. By saying they feel safe, we dismiss that not all queer students do feel safe in an unaffirming space that hold to the policies we just read to you. I often think of the way white people use the likes of Candace Owens or other black people to try and silence the rest to pretend it's not a harmful take that they have. We won't be able to hear all the stories from the students who didn't make it because these views deeply harm them, the ones who are no longer with us. But out of concern for others that may be on that path, I want to make sure we're talking about those who are being harmed in all this too. If you are a current Asbury student looking for support, there are people who care about you and your well-being. And I wanted to say just real quick, I wanted to say that, um, that I am okay with people. If, if you, if you hear from people who would like to be put in touch with one of us, um, I, of the support group, send them my way. I mean, we can't just, we can't just open up our group to everybody because we know that there will be people of not, you know, who, who don't come in good faith, but feel free to put them in touch with me and, um, and let's see if we can we can make a connection. Yeah, be a support to the students of Asbury who yeah, who might be now. It, it we are this is an alumni group or like a you know it, they have to have a connection with Asbury specific connection or either the college or the seminary. But um, but but if we can provide a safe space for former students, former faculty, um, or anyone who is connected to the college or the seminary. Uh, we will be happy to. We'd be happy to do that. Yeah. We'll be happy to send them your way. Okay. It's really right. Excellent. I, I really appreciate you talking to me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think I want to end with a caution for people who are privileged and have a lot of nostalgia for their happy evangelical days of when they were younger and things felt more simple. It's easy the more privilege we have, or here's a term I like, like even better, the more systemic advantage we have. It's easier to chide people for having a critical eye. They imagine the younger version of themselves and just want us to let these happy kids just have their powerful experience of feeling connected and feeling a sense of God. But I think it's worth asking at whose expense. And this podcast has been our attempt to let us see the person who's beat up on the side of the road and not be like the religious leader who has a service to go to so they walk on by. If people are crying out in pain, may we have ears to hear it, even if it challenges the happy dynamic we want to imagine things to be. I want to go back to one part of what that teacher said who was let go for being an ally. You don't have to feel warm, fuzzy feelings about something or some event that folks are so happy about because you're allowed to see things differently than others. 
It's okay for your heart to hurt or even be triggered by a place that rejected you being in the news. True connection to God produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And I think her point is so important that you don't have to think this revival is a good thing or even a real thing. When you read people like Nadia Boltz-Weber, exhausted from culture wars, just longing to trust something for once, longing to witness something real, saying that this is different because it's not the manipulative fog machines and light shows of the past, it's just simple acoustic guitars. You can respond like my friend Josiah when Nadia asks you if she can just absorb something with an open-hearted on curiosity for one fucking minute. 40 years ago, my parents were part of a movement like this. No rules, simple faith. It's all about love and following the spirit. It cost them their entire lives and half of my life to crawl out of this. I will pass on this movement. Thank you very much. In Christian environments, we called it preparing the way for the Holy Spirit. But in psychology, there's a term called priming people. And I think it's worth noting that the kind of emotional manipulation or priming that we're talking about can happen in any setting. I've seen several people online claim that these revival services are more authentic than what you might find at, say, a Hillsong United concert or a Hillsong church service because there are no gobo lights, no fog machines or elaborate stage designs. There's no run sheet with emotional music cues or tightly coordinated band crash outs to work the congregation into a frenzy. But here's the thing. There doesn't need to be. When I was a service producer at Hillsong NYC, I used to joke with some of the music directors and guitarists that we had a hand-raising pedal. Simply a way for a guitarist to trigger a combination of voicings and effects that, when used at the right moment, would cause an entire auditorium to raise their hands in emotional worship. And sure, that worked wonders in those moments. But you don't need those stage tricks to emotionally manipulate a crowd. They can help, Think of the rush you might feel at a Muse or Coldplay concert. Those are the tools a place like Hillsong uses. But when you can create that kind of emotional fervor in a student body by repeatedly reminding impressionable young students of the powerful revivals of the past, when you subject students to mandatory chapel services multiple times a week where they hear sermon after sermon urging them to plead with God for him to do it again, you just might discover that it has the same effect as a Hillsong United concert, possibly even more powerful and more coercive. And more subtle. Manipulation can take on many forms. Institutions like Asbury escape accountability as people try and downplay the immediate and acute harm. They are responsible for their policies. They are responsible for the speakers they bring in. They are responsible for the staff they let go and the reasons that they do that. And they're responsible to create a diverse and safe environment and not use kicking students out as a threat. I think of how Andy Stanley caused a stir when he talked about queer people in his congregation and how brave they were to be there and to just show up. And people want to use that to say he's moving in a positive direction, that we need to wait for change slowly, and that it's a sign that things are changing. But we often don't see when people hold out a carrot on a stick. If I had two kids who were in danger playing with toys in my house— And I talked about how they were so brave to play here in such a dangerous environment. Shouldn't somebody ask me why it's dangerous for kids to play with toys in my house instead of trying to see me as compassionate and wanting change when I created the environment and I'm responsible for the way things are set up? Evangelical Christianity is really bad at holding people to account, especially those in places of authority. 
like institutions and pastors who do hold power to make a difference. Make no mistake, Asbury University holds the power to make their place a safe one. Pointing out where people are currently harmed within their system doesn't make you a killjoy. It doesn't make you the problem, even if you were and are still traumatized. There are a lot of people who like to play off both sides as equal things. It's called both sizing. We talked about it on our last episode with the He Gets Us commercials that put a BLM protester next to a white Christian nationalist participating in an insurrection. This idea that these are two sides to the same coin, it's really toxic and gaslighty. When they say that you need to stay balanced, you can't say that one side is right and one side is wrong, or you're just bringing your past fundamentalist self into this. If you see stuff that's bothering you, don't judge it, or you'll just be like judgmental people and become exactly like them. That's gaslighting. Hate to quote Natty again, but she compared those fighting for justice on the left with the right-wingers who have some qualms about this doctrine at Asbury not being conservative enough. Those who like to be centrist usually help back up the status quo. They will often say you need to be patient as you wait for a change and not go about it in the wrong way, demanding things be different. When patience is what the marginalized are asked to have with regards to ending their marginalization systemically, it's actually a form of continued abuse. Asking for people to be patient with change while someone's mental health or physical health and safety are on the line because of the system only demonstrates the way you are structurally enabled and have embedded advantage. Your position on the way things operate or the waiting game people are asked to play while humans are sacrificed is highly problematic. Take notice of when people who are not in a marginalized group ask for this of communities that are currently being harmed. I often think of Martin Luther King Jr. in his rebuke of white moderates that justice delayed is justice denied. As we are in Black History Month, I wanted to end with a quote from King's letter from Birmingham Jail, who talked about those who want you to just wait and go about things in a certain calm-headed way to be taken seriously while people around you are being harmed. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the black person's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direst action, who paternistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the black person to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have never yet engaged in a direct action movement that was well-timed, according to the timetable of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word, wait. It rings in the ear of every black person with a piercing familiarity. This wait 
has almost always meant never. It has been a tranquilizing thalidomide, relieving the emotional stress for a moment, only to give birth to an ill-informed infant of frustration. We must come to see with the distinguished jurist of yesterday that justice too long delayed is justice denied. That wraps up another episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And if you don't already have one, head over to our website, fullmutuality.com, for a list of all the apps you can find us on. We couldn't do this without you, our listeners. So thank you so much for your continued support. Speaking of support, one of the best things you can do for us is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. I'm pretty sure five-star reviews get you an extra crown in heaven. Look, seriously, if you found this episode insightful, spread the word and share it with your friends. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Full Mutuality. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. Full Mutuality.